0: Dear, dear listener. Hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of our conversation and revelation with Dr. Bob Weathers, as we look at the way out of the prison of addiction to regain our future, hope, and our deepest humanity. Let's go. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I had a thought, John, at the
1: very end. You've shared your song with me a few times. I love it. Every time it uh, reveals something new. At the very end of the song, where you talked about laying your burden down, there's a there's a transition that happens that happened to me, and it happens for people that I work with. Where, Roger, I think back to what you said. How is it that the that the body and the brain can get so hijacked to where? Our, our our desire for connection and morality and all of that is undermined. And how can that happen? And, and when that happens, how do we get back? There's a turning point at which I think of it in terms of the brain. I think of it more as a metaphor, Roger, but it's like the reward circuitry in the brain, which is primarily located in the midbrain. The midbrain takes over the functions of the forebrain and whatever makes you Roger, whatever makes me Bob, and what makes John, John, is is most of that's owing to the forebrain, so you know compassion and communication and creativity, any sense of meaning or purpose, the location of our spirituality, all of that is a function of our, our of our forebrain, and so you can feel this work. I felt this myself. Something begins to change at which the burden of addiction it it begins to be experienced as a burden, and there's a desire for, it's almost like it's fighting fire with a greater fire. The greater fire is what the Buddhists call our original face before we were born. And that you begin to get wisps of that. Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition have different ways of talking about spiritus, is that there's a small still voice. And I remember that beginning to get stronger and stronger in early recovery. And it's where you begin to lay the burden down, John. I was very struck by that. The root of the word addiction is from the Latin word addictus, which is the Latin term for what the Bible calls a bond servant, somebody whose birthright has been sold. It's to translate it more easily, we just maybe call it slave to be enslaved. Then, if if addiction is enslavement or bond servitude, the opposite of that would be liberation, would be freedom, and that's where the burden gets laid down. And I, I have people, John, when you were talking earlier about integral recovery practice, I work with clients and. And I have to caution them because I begin talking about what they're going to need to do on a daily or at least a regular basis to rebalance the all of their lives. And I'll say I want to assure you that it's not as burdensome as it sounds. John, you talked about physical exercise and nutrition and sleep and. Good reading and I think of creative self-expression is being integral to all of this. Certainly spiritual practice, shadow work, and all the psychotherapeutic. All of that sounds so burdensome, except it's not burdensome if it's freeing. <laughs> it's like the incredible lightness of liberation. And so there's a way that it becomes its own reward. And so I don't feel burdened by the daily practices I have. They're actually, they're, they're I'm going to use your word, John, they're the keys to the kingdom. And so, there's a lightness in that. And so, I'll trade off the burdensomeness of addictus, of, of enslavement any day for the freedom of transformative life practices. Roger, I just want to give a thank you. Your, your article all those years ago, an American psychologist was read by me <laughs> and I used it with students on transformative lifestyle changes. I loved that acronym, TLCs. That's really what we're talking about. You list it just authority; it's just comprehensive. And who wouldn't want to practice those things that you talked about? They may be awkward at the beginning because we don't, we don't learn this stuff in school, sad to say, but once they're incorporated, they become their own reward and their own motivation. And so you've talked about it eloquently, Roger. John, your whole book is about this. And the good news is that clients begin to see, they begin to get traction back into their real selves. Rogers, you said if you lose the real self, regaining contact with that is this incredible revelation, and and it is a gift of grace. It's the irony. Carl Jung put it this way. He said, it's not yours, referring to our lives. It's not yours, but you're totally responsible.
2: (laughs) Mm.
1: Uh. It's like like I I engage in all these practices. I don't have some sense of a formulaic, well, now I'm in charge of my life. Whatever language you would use, it's 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 God's grace, or whatever language one might use. It doesn't require religious language, but there's very much a felt sense for me that these practices invite in something, and I just want to open up the portal to that grace. That makes all the difference.
2: And, and I'd like to ask you both about that, because you both emphasize the importance of practice. You've just given a peon to it, to it Bob. Uh, John, one of the central themes of your book, Integral Recovery, is the need for continuous practice. And and I've seen that even in even in friends. I've had a couple of friends who've fallen into addiction. And since they were at least as competent and smart as I was, I was really interested in know how this happened. And I quizzed them. In both cases, both of them said, I stopped my med- meditation practice. Interesting. I stopped practicing. So practice key... And yet one of the things one continuously hears, and you've both alluded to this, and I'd love to ask you about it, is that there's something about giving up that's really crucial. And I would love to understand that better. Can you both say something about that?
1: I'll I'll respond first, because I'm so excited by your question. John, please forgive me my (laughs) impertinence. I want to respond first, then John, I'd love to hear yours too. You know, it's a, a bit of a paradox you know, raised especially in Western culture, where self-reliance is like the central kind of axiom of existence. The idea that I would surrender self in whatever language we might use is certainly counterintuitive and probably even seen as insurrectionist, you you know. But there is a sense and maybe some of us, I'll speak for myself, Roger, I think because I was raised, I, I tease people is that the Bible in my household growing up was, was Ralph Waldo Emerson's literally self-reliance. It sat on the kitchen table, and I, I, I'm i just raised it. And, and so, when I reached that place that I mentioned earlier to you all in the hospital, in, in and around that time where there's no self upon which to rely, it, I think for some people it takes having our... Ass is handed to us, really. And it happened to me where it took just a complete quashing of ego to realize I can still remember in the hospital. And I rarely hear people talk about this, but I want to give witness to it. I can remember being in the hospital at the very, in the very dregs of the very worst of things. And the intuition came to me, Roger and John, I think there's going to be a day where I feel nostalgic for this clarity. I remember that as clear as the bell. I was just just out of my addiction. I was in detox, but there was something about the freedom of absolutely losing everything. Thomas Burton put it this way, you get life, wears you down to a nub, and then something wears down the nub. (laughs) And I felt like I was nubless there in the hospital. And so there was an involuntary surrender on my part, Roger. I want you to know it wasn't like I thought, well, I think I'll just try some surrender today. Life owing to its exigencies, it just wiped out everything that I was attached to, some of which I shared earlier. And in that came a chance to start anew. I was just talking to my wife about this last night. My birthday's coming up and yesterday was Mother's Day and we went to see a play yesterday. And because it was Mother's Day, and the parking available for the play was really dicey and we couldn't find parking and it looked like we were going to miss the play. And owing to a tur- turn of- Wonderful circumstances. We got to see the play. Well, Colleen and I went out for dinner later, and she said, "Bobby, I noticed that you didn't seem bent out of shape before that." She she says, "It looks like you moved into acceptance." And I paused for a minute, and I thought, "I did, I did," and and I know as well as anybody, I can be quite non accepting, but what I shared with Colleen is the truth for me in these years of practicing, let's say, surrender is that when I start to feel stressed, and I did yesterday, I thought, damn it, we're not going to make it to the play. It almost becomes a cue for what can I do to let go into this. Mm. I don't want to sound cute or formulaic about that either. There's something that's been cultivated. There's almost like I can fight it, and I know the misery that that invites, or I can find some way to let go into this and Let's see where this takes us. Colleen noticed that. I was very touched by her noticing that. And then we shared notes about it. So, I fail sometimes, but I more often than not, something's happened. It's like daily practice of surrender. So, I think meditation is a way to cultivate that. I think physical exertion is a way to cultivate that. Certainly, shadow work is a way to cultivate that. But you get to a place where you wake up one day right before your 68th birthday, which is coming up next week, and... The critical mass has shifted to where little Bobby is more surrendered than not most of the time. Now, that is pure grace, Roger. Mm -hmm. And it takes all the practices led to this, but I can't possibly assign that to my practice Or to something I've done. In fact, Ken would call it a performative contradiction. You know, if I've turned it into something I've done, then I'm probably contradicting myself. (laughs) So, that's a bit of a response, Roger. I care deeply about this topic and I, I don't know if it communicates. I hope that it does, but it matters a lot. It means the most to me, I think. How surrendered am I? How open am I? In Colleen's terms, how accepting can I be? of life on life's terms right now in this moment will it be okay if i don't make play yeah it'll
0: be okay
2: (laughs) (laughs) beautiful (laughs) yeah Yeah, and and and
0: roger kind of on what you said of us remember the question but addiction first of all this is a really important thing to know about the disease it's regressive disease if you get it, you're not just going to find it. I mean, this is the dream of every addict, that they'll just find that middle ground where they can manage it, you know, and still keep drinking or using it. Everything will be okay. You can still faking it, you know, and, you, you know, your eyes and your breath and, you know, oh, honey, I was helping all laid across the street, whatever. You can manage that, You can't. It gets worse. It, it's all encompassing. And one of the things, and I'll, I'll get back to the original question, but this is a really important point. It is devolutionary. Okay, so we talk about different stages of ethical and moral development in Ken's work and spiral dynamics. And and a lot of people have talked about it. So say you're at basically an orange or modernistic kind of, you know, which is kind of the, the meme. It used to be anywhere in our culture. I'm not so sure anymore. So you're there when when the disease kicks in. Well, very quickly, you start devolving to lower and lower stages of uh, goes down to, you know, manipulation and narcissism. It's like, the only thing that matters is me and my high, and you're just an object to be used. And this could be formerly a person that you loved and respect or looking in the mirror, seeing yourself. And it, it's horrifying. And after that, it's even beyond narcissism because you don't care about you anymore. It's all about the high, okay? And that's pretty soon, either you end up in prison or on a slab, you know, or, you know, on the street somewhere, just howling at the moon. And when you begin to come out of it, you begin to climb that ladder again to your, where you were before. And, and I've seen people in just a few weeks, they begin to, you know, get through this, you know, angry, resentful self, blah, 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 all this stuff. And they start, they start coming back to to their their formal level of actually caring about their family and 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 caring about you know their dog and then their friends and the world and all these things and as the journey continues because it's almost you have to keep evolving you have to keep doing the practice you you get to move into even higher and deeper stages of compassion and and ethical development when you're down there and you you lose all that. There's a huge vacuum, as I think that you refer to, Roger. This is vast emptiness. And you better fill it up with something because, you know, I mean, it's no good to say, oh, I just won't do this anymore. I, I see how bad it made me. If you can do that, and some people can, then they're not an addict and the show is not about them. You can see, you know, what's going wrong. Okay, I can't drink. I get it. I just can't drink. Or I need to moderate or blah, 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 all those things. That's not available to the addict. And, and, and you're going to have to reach out and ask for help and get help. And that's, that's again, that's a very humbling thing to do that. No, I can't. I can't do as Roger, Bob, rather you were saying being self-reliant and, you know, pulling yourself up by your, your own bootstraps and, you know, it's in, in our culture, that's a big thing. It, it, it can't happen. So it is developmental and you better fill that stuff up. And I think that's one of the things that practices can do because it takes some time. You know, if you're going to work out every day or five days a week or six days a week, whatever, and you're going to meditate an hour a day and you're going to, you know, you're going to do all these other things. It, it takes a while, but I've had students say, well, this is really time consuming and expensive. And so, well, how much time and money did you spend on staying high and how much time and energy did you spend 24 uh, seven? OK, there. it's a pretty good deal. You know, there's really <laughs> low interest and you get a lot back. So yeah, did that, did that answer any any what you were
2: <laughs> you were probing? Yeah, it got to it got to a lot of things, and and I want to use that as leverage to take us to a, another perspective. And you know, one of the central themes, one of the things I really take away from from both your experience and both your very poignant accounts of of your own suffering, Bob, as you've gone through this, is the suffering you've witnessed, both of you in your clinical and therapeutic work, it's just the enormous extent of suffering that, that addiction causes and the pervasive extent of it. You know, you, your figure sticks with me, Bob. 80% of the prison population in this country, addiction, Ah. Oh. And I want to look towards the future because this is not, not, this is an incredibly important topic because of the enormous suffering and destruction it's causing now. But I'm afraid it's going to get worse and it's already changing. And maybe we can start with a changing face of addiction. I just recently did uh, like some continuing medical education. One of the things that now on the medical education list is internet addiction. Well, you know, we didn't have that 20 years ago, but now it's a major thing. There are people, there's, there's a thing in Japan, hikikomori syndrome of people, kids who just shut themselves in their room and don't come out for years. I mean, so this is a real issue. And of course, internet pornography, you know, used to be as a physician, someone comes in with erectile dysfunction. Okay, do you have diabetes? Do you have heart disease? Have you had a coronary? Now it's first question is how much internet porn do you watch? It's like this is this is changing the face of our culture, and we are get at, with our technology. We're getting better and better at what are, at creating what are called super stimuli, stimuli which are more attractive, compelling, powerful, and addictive than natural stimuli. And they are creating what are called evolutionary traps. That is, we are designed, for example, to want sugar and salt and fat because. They were good for survival on the savannah 200,000 years ago. But now when we have, have food companies creating mixes of these things to create what they call the bliss point of entertainment, then then surprise, we have 70% of our, our population that's obese and we're getting what's called globicity, a worldwide global epidemic of, of obesity. But so the chase, face of addiction is changing. But what I'm really scared by is it's going to get worse. You know, if we look at the last several hundred years of addiction, as the as technology has improved, we've been able to synthesize more addictive substances, increase their potency, increase the number of ways we can administer them. And so that is for sure going to continue. And plus, we're going to get entirely new, new kinds of things, you know, what happens when virtual reality goes online? If internet addiction is a problem now, virtual reality is going to be, it's like going to be almost, you know, getting close to the classic metaphor of the brain and the vat, just stimulating the brain and the vat. And, and so we're going to have brain-mind machines. We're going to have direct brain stimulation. We are going to have technologies we haven't even thought of, which for sure – Some of them will be addictive, some of them will be more addictive than what we're dealing with, and the things you guys are working with are going to be even more important. I'm scared. I'm really scared by the potentials of where our technology may have for increasing the potency and pervasiveness of addiction.
0: Let me say something about that really stirred me in. Very soon, uh, this summer, I think, is coming up, I'm going to do another uh, online vision quest. Experience, and Bob's going to help me launch that. And I started doing during the pandemic, you know, what are you going to do? And what are you good at, John? Well, I'm on Vision Quest a lot. And I took hundreds of people out on Vision Quest, probably in my career, people in recovery, et cetera. And when you say that, Roger, it's so powerful. I mean, what we're combating, and I read recently that the average young Black kid in America that comes from a, a lower economic background looks at his phone 11 hours a day. It's a poor kid, 11 bloody hours a day. So we're going to have to have some real attention to soul-centric importance of finding out like the basic questions of why the fuck am I here? And what the hell am I supposed to be doing with my life? And how does this, you know, my four hours or three hours of porn fit into that? Or how does this and this and that? And it's like, no, that's not it. And when we begin to have those tastes, like I think you talked about, Bob, you know, those moments of grace where you find out there's something deeper, there's something better, there's, there's there's a higher power there and there's a higher purpose in your life from the confusion and the chaos. It's like, okay, so how does this fit into that? Well, it doesn't, you know, and, and this is the thing that really gives me satisfaction at the deepest level when I realize that I'm actually becoming, it feels like a channel or an instrument for for service for peace for creativity for love and it's coming through me and all of a sudden you know okay okay it starts to make sense all you know everything begins to fall into place and go that's what i'm here to do so if we don't have ways of introducing our young people not to mention our older people into finding what 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 is deepest and what is most true and that they are spiritual beings, and they have soul, and they have a responsibility and a karmic duty, if you will, to do what you're supposed to do and if you don't find that you're you're just you're just a ship in a in a in a hurricane with no anchor or anything, and you're just tossed around by all these addictive and powerful technologies and so maybe it has to be proactive and maybe we have to get on the bandwagon and say okay young man or young woman come with me we're going to go in the woods and we're going to ask some, some questions and you're going to you know look in the pond and see your reflection and look at the stars and hear the owl and and find out who your ancestors were and what you're here to do and and find your place your little important place in the big scheme of things and possibly that's something of, of a response to the scary things, you're, the horrifying things you're talking about, Roger.
2: Yeah, and that's beautiful. That's bringing in purpose. And and maybe that's, I'm aware you have to go in just a minute or so, Bob. And Maybe that's a beautiful, that's certainly a beautiful theme to point towards our ending. But Bob, is there anything would you like to add to that?
1: For you to know, I texted the individual I was meeting with so that we wouldn't be held to that, because I don't want Kronos <laughs> to get in the way of Kairos here. <laughs> We've got a very special moment here, and so we're going to we bend going the guy Kronos, a little bit. I would love to respond, and then I'll gracefully bow out here. But, John, I love what you said, and the question is an important question. You laid the groundwork, Roger. I just read an editorial yesterday in the New York Times. My favorite religion writer for the New York Times is Tish Warren. She's an Anglican priest back in the Northeast. And she wrote an article, a very thoughtful article that I recommend to anyone that has interest in this, on Internet addiction, particularly kids' exposure to social media and video games. It was an interview with a thought leader in that whole field. It's very touched by the deep ethic of all of this And so, let me use that as as just a quick launching board to talk about any kind of addiction. You know, Carl Jung said that the work of consciousness is the opus contra naturum. Opus is the Latin word for work. Contra is against. Naturum is nature. So, what we're talking about is going upstream, going against nature Roger, you might be aware of Richard Rawson's work at the UCLA School of Medicine. He's researched in great detail the effects of any of the addictive substances on the dopaminergic system in the body and the brain. And if our normal baseline level, just for the sake of conversation, is let's say is one, a dopamine level of one, when we eat our favorite food, it might go up to one5 Sex is the primary ingredient in the release of dopamine, and it makes sense evolutionarily, is that's how we procreate. And so it doubles our normal dopamine level. So somewhere in between one and two in the normal organic realm, sex being the most pleasurable. Right next to sex, John, is your guitar playing in my drumming. I think they're very close to two.
2: <laughs>
1: in, in that scheme, well, Richard Ross and the physician up there who's done this research seeing this is that cocaine quadruples our normal dopamine level. So it's twice as much dopamine release as sex. Heroin is a factor of 10 times our normal dopamine level. By the way, all addictive substances affect multiple systems, but they all affect the dopaminergic system, even opiates, they affect the dopaminergic release. Methamphetamine is 12 times your normal dopamine level. Roger, in the spirit of what you've talked about, I don't know where fentanyl fits in there, but I suspect it's even more. And, and you know, as well as we read every week, the release of new chemicals, veterinary compounds and so on, that is, it just continues to advance. And so, you know, back to opus contra naturum, there's nothing in human nature that is wired evolutionarily to tolerate that kind of release of dopamine and not get addicted to it. Once exposed, it's very difficult not to, to get addicted to it. And so I think that Tish Warren's article yesterday is she's counseling parents or responsible individuals. And I think it would fit with porn. It would fit with all of the substances. I just read a statistic, Roger, 46.3 million Americans are currently clinically addicted to substance. That's out of SAMHSA in Washington. That's just, that's January of this year. That's an increase of 30 or 40% over the previous three years. I mean, it's 46.3 million Americans out of that group, only 6% received treatment last year. So the vast number of all of those that are clinically addicted, which is all of us, are not receiving treatment. 90% of Americans endorse in nationwide studies that they have at least one behavioral addiction going on right now. So aside from substances, all the other things, so compulsive relationships to sex, food, possessions, the internet, 90% of us say that we have at least one of those going on right now. So we're talking about to be human is to be addictus, is to be enslaved to what we're talking about. And so what we need to do is what we're doing right now and what Tish Warren is doing is in any form that we can to acknowledge that there's no way that we can beat four times our normal dopamine level or 10 times, there's, there's no way we can do that. An internet porn is going to be way beyond that. I can just have a constant stimulus for sexually released dopamine. So, we have to find some conscious way. I'm going to use your image from the vision quest, John. We need to tether ourselves to the four directions, all of the Lakota Sioux, and find some way to begin to exercise restraint. One of my favorite poets is Gary Snyder, and he says, he who knows the soul of the wolf Knows the restraint of the wolf. We have got to begin to find creative ways to endorse restraint at all levels of our society. Easier said than done. But we'll never beat the, there's no way we can catch up with Darwin here. The evolution is so far ahead of us in terms of what we're evolving. It's way beyond. It's the same with nuclear pr- proliferation. It's like you, you've got to exercise restraint because we're way out of control with something that will destroy ourselves. Well, addiction is the same beast, so. I feel really committed to this. I've got a, John, you know this, I've got a nationwide webinar coming up in June, and it's reaching out to every mental health provider that I know, providing the information, like what we're talking about, that they can provide to loved ones, not only those in addiction, but the loved ones, is I think education, public policy, having people in Washington that are endorsing some of their approach to treating addiction other than just incarceration, and that's One can only hope for that. Issues around harm reduction as opposed to a zero tolerance policy. Can we at least start by saving people's lives and then talk about recovery? If people are dead, then it's a moot point. So there's so many things that we can do. You can tell I get really wired. It's interesting that day in, day out, my work is clinical. I work with one individual or a couple or a family at a time, but I really, really care about also on a social systemic level, what can we do to educate the powers that be to begin to move towards a different metaphor for living this life that just because we can do something which is we can quadruple our normal dopamine level, doesn't mean that we should do it. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to begin to put back in to the box and put the lid on it. And is there any culture on the planet that lives addicted to excess any more than ours here in the United States? And so uh, it's a tall task to ask this, this incredible and materialistic excess that we're engaged in. I'm on my soapbox. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> I
0: care a lot. About that. No, that's a good point. And that restraint comes from when you realize your life matters. You, yes. know? you have children, yeah. you have parents, you have friends, you have a dog, you have flowers that need to be watered. I mean, life matters. And I love that the restraint of the wolf, that's brilliant. Yeah, it is. So we just have to, in some way, we have to be more soul-centric and less duck materialistic or just market-driven or stimulus-driven, is there a deeper, better part of the human being that we can tap into and cultivate? John, it's interesting because you can actually say we can
1: be more selfish. And who I'm thinking of right now is Martin Seligman, who studied happiness as much as anybody on the planet, and he looks at different levels of happiness, and acquisition up to a certain level will make us happier, but it's only to a very minimal level. Having enough food, having a roof over my head, and beyond that, it doesn't correlate with happiness. What correlates with happiness? Contribution, connection, flow. The people that are happiest on the planet are those that give back pro-social or altruism, whatever you want to call it. thats If you want to be selfish and you want to be happy, try that for a change. And so, the illusion that we've been sold of is, is of acquisitiveness. Let me just acquire enough enough toys. Those people don't on their deathbed die happy. There's no way that that hmm. happens. There's a way that you could start in the churches and the synagogues and on the streets of talking about, if you want to be happy, let's talk about what really goes into that. And it's what you're talking about, John, and you too, Roger, living a life of value, Meaning and purpose. Now, if you want happiness, let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, we have a and, and now you now we're really getting into the cultural roots of yeah. the of the heart of addiction, and the recognition that that our our collective worldview, our cultural understanding of meaning and purpose, and most of all happiness, is incredibly skewed and distorted, and, and frankly erroneous. And we live in largely, to a large extent, a consumer society with billions of dollars of advertising pointed at us, with now increasingly sophisticated computers working to get us to buy and to consume and to spend more time on on the screens. And if we think we've got a problem now with the first AI that's come online, which is social media, and social media was... Social media alone, that level of AI was enough to create addiction, doom scrolling, divisive society, and almost the demise of democracy. So we've got other problems coming from these kinds of computerized addictions too. But your point is something really important, and that is all of this is in the search for happiness, but it's a misguided search. And there's not an understanding of exactly what you've said, that we've been told we can have it all. What we haven't been told is having it all isn't enough. That's well said. It doesn't do it.
1: Well said, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So now we're getting to the cultural roots of addiction. And that's a very, very important piece, too. So thank you both for bringing that up.
1: Roger, you asked earlier about integral recovery and what makes integral recovery integral. And, and one way of talking about it in the most condensed way is it's a bio, psycho, social, cultural, spiritual perspective on addiction. And each one of those is, is required. In other words, it's, it's a complicated description because we're complicated beings and if you leave out any one of those which most perspectives do, we have this incredible siloization you know it as an academic yourself Roger, the silos, if I spend my whole career studying the biological aspects of addiction, that doesn't leave me much time to study the sociological or the cultural and then I'll tend to reduce things down to my perspective, it happens all the time, not only in academics but across all of us and so it requires us holding the tension of the four directions or the five directions or the the infinite directions, and at least as a start, to take seriously the biological, to take seriously the psychological, to look at the social-relational, to look at the societal-cultural. That gives us a start, and embedded in the psychological, for me, is the spiritual, because I don't separate those out. But all of those perspectives are, are valid, and John, your book and this that we're talking about is the only game in town, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of being comprehensive enough. To address this in a way moving forward it seems like to me so i really really appreciate our ending on the cultural my background as a psychologist the least training i had was in the lower right-hand quadrant had tons of training in the psychological obviously a lot in the lower left-hand quadrant the social relational a lot in the upper right-hand quadrant the biomedical very little in terms of the societal cultural systemic and that's probably that's my shadow so I always have to work out that's probably why i get so worked up <laughs> because it's the one that's least cultivated in terms of my own training and the one that maybe is the most lacking in psychology so i want to i want to hold myself to a higher standard i really do so this 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 feels like it's comprehensive enough to include the whole the whole field of addiction and i should say the whole field of recovery i'll finish with this you gentlemen I used to go into treatment centers and I came to me one day, I took a piece of paper, John, you'll appreciate this. Both of you will. I folded it into where there was a quadrant and I folded it into four squares. I've done it with clients. I've done it with, these were, this was a staff, recovery staff in a treatment center. And I said, in the upper left hand, would you tell me, would you just use in your own words, how would a, how would a therapist define addiction? And every person there could do that. They wrote it out and we shared. In the upper right hand, how would, how would Roger Walsh define addiction? How would a psychiatrist, how would a physician describe addiction? They could nail that, Roger. It was stunning. I went to the lower right hand. I said, how would a courtroom judge define addiction? Somebody said, three to five years. That was the answer. That's accurate. That's accurate. The lower left hand. I said, how about the lower left hand? How would a loved one define addiction? Everyone could get that. But here was the kicker, you guys. I had them turn it over, and I said... How would you define addiction? And what was striking to me, still gives me the cold pricklies, is that to a one, everyone in that room, these were all recovery staff workers said, I define addiction as a spiritual condition with a, a spiritual solution, which is not wrong. It's not wrong. And I said, well, how about the other four on the, on the back that you talked about? And several people said something that stuck with me, and said, oh, I don't really take those seriously. Those are just opinions. And the fact is, is that was what was on those four four tiles on the front. Those are all important. The one on the back was important. Why can't we be inclusive?
0: No. Uh-huh. We're gone. Hey, I also want to say if, if you guys are are having problems with addiction, you know, this book is really good. You just go Amazon, wherever you get your books, John Dupuy Integral Recovery. And whether you're suffering from addiction, or you have a family member, or you're just interested because it's a huge, massive problem, it's a, it's a really good addition. It'll, it'll help you grow and think in in other ways. If you're 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 suffering from addiction, or uh, I've I don't know how many people I've referred to you over the years, Bob, but it's been a lot. And um, I can get somebody hooked up to you. It's like, okay. I can, I, you know, you're going to take care of me, you're going to get most, most people can't just do it online. You have to, if you're really far down, you got to go to a treatment center, you got to go to a place where they can control you. And once you get out, then your work with the therapist or, or a Dr. Bob here, gets more important, but he will point you in the right direction, exactly what you need to do according to where you're at on the journey, Uh, Or the descent, I should say. Bob Weathers. Also, we did a we did a podcast earlier called Integral Recovery. Is that what we called it? I think so. Yeah, we had uh, like 50 chapters of we just get into it a lot. So unfortunately, those podcasts are still as relevant as they ever were. Here we go. So uh, as we kind of sign off here, I'm gonna just turn it over to you, Roger. And thank you, folks. Listen to the song too. I appreciate it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you both very much. You both have a wealth of personal experience and heartbreaking openness to this tragedy that we face both as a culture and now as a global population. You also have a vast conceptual understanding and therapeutic wisdom about it. So it's been really wonderful to have the two of you come together and bring your wisdom together. And thank you so much for the work you're both doing.
1: Thank you, Roger. Blessings to you. You too, John. It's a real honor to be with both of you. I wish you both well. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, and
0: everybody's listening to this. We love you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Today's episode was brought to you by iwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.